This is Neil Rockine. Welcome to another edition of the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. This is a really special episode. So if you like our content, it, subscribe, like, follow. We're available on all podcast platforms, all podcast media. I'm Neil Rockhind. This is a podcast devoted to cross-examination, to trial lawyers. And I'm not talking about the guys who say they're trial lawyers. I'm talking about the guys who really go to court and fight. There's no better person to talk about going to court and fighting than my guest, Ven Johnson. Ven is a, is a personal injury lawyer, civil rights lawyer, medical malpractice lawyer. He made his bones actually trying cases all over the country. And he's here to talk to us on the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. Ven, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Neil. How you doing, brother? Uh, I'm fantastic. And I'm so glad that uh, we finally be able to hook up and to have this conversation. Thank you. So uh, first of all, tell me a little bit about your practice, uh, what you do, your cases, your background, and then we'll chop it up a bit. All right, cool. Well, I uh, grew up really all over the state of Michigan. I was born in Southwest Michigan outside of Kalamazoo in a small little town called Three Rivers and then lived in one even smaller called Centerville for the first couple of years. And then my family moved down to Ohio, believe it or not, Neil. Dad uh, and mom were public school teachers, and dad got a uh, principal job down in Van Wert, Ohio, uh, and then came back and ultimately uh, in like 1965, 1966, I uh, moved to Saginaw, and that's where I attended K through 12. So I graduated uh, high school from what is no longer Saginaw, Douglas MacArthur High School in 1979, went to Kalamazoo College, a uh, small division three school in Kalamazoo, which was a phenomenal uh academic school for some reason they needed apparently a tennis player or a basketball player from Saginaw so they let me in anyway and uh <laughs> that got me ready for law school was a on the one year on basketball four, four years on tennis and that was there goes my sports career that was that was a quick conversation wasn't it? you know ain't it done I mean you got you got more sports career than most of us so you got more to talk about there at least it's not filler exactly. you really did you really did play competitive tennis and as I understand it you're still actively involved in sponsoring, um, promoting, uh, I think not just Calum tennis in Kalamazoo, but also Correct. in your, in your, your hometown. Is that right? Yes, sir. We're just really proud. I love tennis. Uh, my loves tennis, Kalamazoo college, but especially kids, man, I'm, I'm all about kids. Like many of us are, I know you, you are as well. And, and so I kind of combined a lot of that stuff in some of my sponsorships. And so right now we are one of the major sponsors of the boys nationals 18 and under and 16 and under national championships that occur every year that people don't know about hosted at Kalamazoo college, believe it or not, Neil, Little plug going there. On now there for this, this next year will be 80th year, eight zero 80th year. Unbelievable. K college has done that. And my best friend, Mark Riley, that you've met many times, he's not only the head tennis coach at Kalamazoo, he's also the uh, director of that tournament. So it's the biggest national junior tournament in the world, but it's just for United States players. So it's called a United States closed tournament. So every guy right out there, folks back from McEnroe to Sampras to Agassi, Jim Courier, Michael hey, Chang. See McEnroe the back there? You see Johnny play. Mack back there? Can you see him? Am I got Johnny Mack the rebel there, like a Dude, rebel? I got yeah. hey, I got a picture of him uh, likewise <laughs> in my house. I love him. But anyway, so uh I'm a spot we Johnson Laura sponsor of that. Over here, Neil, over on uh in Woodward between you know six and seven miles is the beautiful Palmer Park. 
And uh, we are, are a sponsor of the Palmer Park Tennis Academy that Coach Lee uh, is running. And the kids are coming for not just tennis, but after school stuff. And 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 Coach Riley and I have always talked about a foundation. So stay tuned. We're hoping to do that and combine that with uh, there's been a really good, uh, great push in our country, uh, Neil, in the last five to 10 years on tennis foundations. Um and they're growing up in, in in smaller cities now, not just the bigger ones. So like Saginaw has one that I went up and 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 it was a part of earlier this year, and uh, and Flint, and of course Detroit has a couple. And so we're we're hoping that uh, by this momentum, right, that we can continue to raise awareness and and money and assist kids in in not just tennis but after school mentoring and and so forth and and uh so we're still kind of on the ground floor on that neil but that's that's a huge 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 thing for me and I, i'm just proud and glad to, that i can do a small part in that you you are an obviously emotional competitive guy i know okay. that because we know each other yes sir and you're so you are a fiery competitive guy i i and I happen to admire the way that you, know, uh, you stand in the courtroom and you stand, you know, you're 6'4 or 6'5, whatever six you are. Four, yes, sir. And you stand there with your hands on the side of the podium and you tower over the, which is you're using your physical attributes, but you have a fire and a passion about you. So t- I, I presume you had that. And I want you to tell me about that in sports. And somehow that seems like a natural fit for you to, to take on large corporations and and uh, and evildoers in the courtroom. <laughs> well, uh, I got to give credit to Vernon Junior Johnson. That'd be Dad. So the my my namesake, at least for my first name. Uh, but Dad was a great athlete. Neil grew up in beautiful Cadillac, Michigan. Played four sports, varsity lettered in four sports, and ultimately played uh, on on scholarships at Western in uh, tennis, in basketball, and and baseball. Believe it or not. And so I really got all that from him. And yeah, it's funny because I, when I connect with folks from college and, and law and uh, excuse me, from uh, high school and, and college, they look at me and say, you know what? Uh, you're, you're just, you're still you just a little bit more of you. <laughs> so I think that's <laughs> what they're describing. I hope that's a good thing, Neil. I don't well, know. We man. see a lot. We see a lot of you. We see you all over the place. You've got very prominent, um, very prominent, uh, uh, commercials, uh, public presence, and not just commercials that I think are interested in drawing, um, you know, potential clients, but uh, commercials that play on your, your fighting, your, I think you actually have a, a, a boxing glove is right. your, is your trademark sort of your, your insignia, if you will. And so tell me, how, how did that come about? How did you get that, that, that moniker as a fighter? Well, yeah, you know, obviously we we've all probably been called that in our careers, right? That's what we do. You do the same thing. Uh, but uh, after you know, I was uh, a defense lawyer, civil defense lawyer for the first nine, almost ten years of my career, Neil. And as you know, uh, when you and I met, uh, I, I was working at the Figer firm, so I was about a ten-year lawyer when I started there. Met you shortly thereafter, and then uh, I was with Jeffrey and in, in the Figer firm for sixteen years. Uh, was his law partner there and the name on the firm and all that stuff. And then uh, in 2011, I left and as we call it in our industry, I hung my own shingle and I started uh, Johnson Law. And it started with no files and working out of the the upstairs of my home at the time. And uh, it's very, uh, we're very blessed. It's morphed into what was three offices. We're now down to two. We have an office in downtown Detroit uh, where we have about uh, 11, 12 lawyers 
and about 30 some staff. And then we have uh, in Flint, downtown Flint, we have a staff of four lawyers and about five staff. So we did have Grand Rapids, unfortunately, after seven years, I didn't think I wanted to uh, live on I-96 anymore, you know, going back and forth every week and so forth. So we did uh, unfortunately have to uh, not no longer re-up on, on that particular lease, but uh, we're really proud of our, our operation, Neil. And, and what I love is I got people that work alongside with me, not for me, but with me in the trenches every single day. And I do think that that translates into fighting and fighting about causes and people. And that's what we do. And when uh, I left Jeffrey's office, it, I think every marketing person in the world thought I was either a sucker or something, but came to me and uh, and pitched some uh, ideas. And John Barlow, who I know you know, and I got to give a shout out to John and Barlow Communication at the time. He came to me and said, I tell you what I've always liked about you, kid, called me kid. Uh, you're a fighter. You were the one that always was trying the cases. If Jeffrey wasn't trying it, you were trying it for him, with him, or with the other guys from the law firm. And so he mocked up the fighter. And what I did, uh, I, I was very careful. I, I was very cautious and a little cynical. And I brought it to buddies like you uh, and a number of the judges in our area. And I asked for their confidentiality. And I showed them kind of the mock-up of the boxing glove and how we proposed to, to go about doing it. And the number one thing that I said to folks was, you know, Neil, you know, I've worked really hard just like you have and many of us have in our industry work really hard to get a, a good reputation, whatever that means as a trial lawyer, but seriously, where folks know that I'm not screwing them over and lying, cheating and stealing. And I didn't want to tarnish that in any way because of some, you know, just quip, uh, some marketing cute line or something. So I really, really interviewed the marketing teams, if you will, like they were interviewing me. And I told him point blank that if I'm going to do this, we're doing it. Ultimately, I'm going to listen to what you have to say, but I'm, you're going to do it my way. I get final say. I get to edit everything. And I want to make sure that I'm not in any way uh, besmirching the uh, profession. You know, plaintiff, uh, personal injury lawyers, Neil, I don't know if you know this, but we don't need any help, uh, you know, looking bad sometimes, you know. we. Sometimes <laughs> you, you, mean, we you mean the soap operas are filled with all <laughs> of the ads from lawyers who beat their yeah. chest about called chess beating banter all them talk about how they are going to try cases and many of them haven't as you know Never. set foot in a courtroom as you know so being I, in the I, trenches I man, being really... in the trenches being in the ring right that's to me what right. fighter meant and that's what barlow did and and ever since then we've just obviously we've uh like anything in life we know we've we've modified it and hopefully made it better over the course of these 11 and a half years but that's what we're doing and and every single day that's that's what we do we're in the trenches in that in that ring swinging, you know, for our clients, man. And that's what it's one thing about. I want to, one thing I want to bring up that I was particular that I knew about you was that when you started with the Venn fights, I always thought, how is this guy starting this practice from, you know, leaving a large firm, right? Leaving one of the, the, a guy who seemed to, to draw a ton of cases, Jeffrey drew a ton of big cases of which Huge. you participated in some of, of the, the largest Let's cases. Throw it right out there, Neil. One of the best plaintiff lawyers, uh, ever in history and, in the United and, States. Well, and and I thought, and I thought one of the things that you did that was particularly impressive was, is that when you left, I almost thought you were like a, um, like a mercenary, like, Hey, I, I have my own cases, but there are a lot of lawyers out there that won't, can't, haven't been in the trenches, can't put a case together. And it was almost like, Hey, I'm Ven. If you've got a case and you you know, or for whatever reason, aren't going to be prepared to try it, bring Ven Johnson in, we fight, we'll do it. And I followed you on social media. 
And you were like, every week, it seemed like you had another trial that you were prepping for. Yep. Well, and then all of a sudden really. you're blowing up. You're, you're got the, you know, a, a huge following and a huge practice. Well, thanks, Neil. What, what, one of the things that we did uh, obviously was, you know, uh, referral lawyers are an incredible uh, source of, of business for uh, a plaintiff personal injury lawyer like me. To this day, uh, Neil, any depending on the year, anywhere from 50 to 60% of the cases that we actually have in court are referred to us by other attorneys that don't do that type of work or do that type of work, but know that the case is going to be uh, highly, uh, you know, complicated. It's going to cost a lot of money to, to, uh, to finance and so forth. So I'm very fortunate. They'll bring that to me. I, I uh, always put the, the referral fee and the, uh, the, the business end of things in writing. So I don't fight with lawyers after the, the case about how much I owe them or how much they owe me or what have you. It's all in writing and, and solidified. And, and that was one of the things that, I, that people did. They brought cases to me. Uh, I can think of a couple of cases, Neil, that first couple of years that you're talking about, got, uh, lawyers brought stuff to me less than two weeks before trial. And, and I just went in and tried the case and, or settled the case at trial or tried to a verdict or whatever it was. And uh, I, I just, I love trial. You know that, so do you, you're great at it. And I think to be I a really it. good at anything, you got to love what you do. And it can't, in a weird way, feel like work because it's just so much a part of you and what you believe in. And so as difficult as trial is, as you know, I'm in trial right now and I'm doing this because it's just, it's just part of what we do. Right. It's, it's fun. I appreciate that. It's difficult, but it's, it's fun, right? All right. So let me ask you this. I want to jump into the, to the meat of it because um, I'm going to, you're involved in some of the biggest cases in the country. Um, and uh, the and I want to touch on a few of them and sort of tell me, um, you know, about and I'm going to play a clip. I have two deaths. I have a kid standing next to the guy that got shot right in the back of the head so he could watch with the murderer saying it right to him, lay down on the ground and go right next to him. So I, I just watched it. We just are going to discuss the Oxford Consolidated High School shooting right, case, the right. Crumley case. And I, I don't even know if you even call it the Crumley case. You may right. have a different name for it. But I well, watched we, we you. Call it, it's the first of many of our clients, but the first name on it is Mir, the MYR. And that's that's uh, the family of Tate Mir, who unfortunately was one of the of the two young men and the families that I represent that was actually killed. Then you have been out front. You have in my opinion, filled a void. Thank you. And you have taken on the absence of apparent transparency right. or really any information right. from the school board. Tell me what that is like. What's it like being in the center of that case? Uh, horrible tragedy, obviously. And uh, we, we are we followed up uh, a couple other lawyers filed cases and, and Neil, they filed their cases in federal court because uh, they were trying to avoid the harsh realities of Michigan governmental immunity uh, that even though I know you don't do uh, PI, you, you know what that is. And it's basically government. You can't sue the government unless they say you can. And when they say they can, they really don't mean it. And they hope to throw your case out of court without ever going to trial. So uh, they went that route and I respect that. Uh, but I went a different route. I, I went in Oakland County Circuit Court, the very county where this tragedy happened, uh, because I truly believe, much like in the criminal case that's going not only against Ethan Crumley, the shooter, but against his parents, 
that uh, Prosecutor Karen McDonald uh, charged uh, in this case, that I can't think of a better county for this case to be tried in a civil case after all that that went down and everyone's going to be following that case. So I, I filed a case there against Ethan Crumley, his parents, and the school officials uh, that absolutely had uh, prior knowledge of, of all sorts of things going on in Crumley's life that they did not pay close enough attention to, and more importantly, did not share with each other, didn't tell the principal, didn't tell the security officers who are armed guards that are there at the school, didn't tell the liaison officer who is an Oakland County Sheriff deputy who's armed and in school every single day, didn't tell him anything. And so, uh, and then ultimately we know uh, that on the day of the shooting, they actually ended up giving his backpack back to him without and searching. This is stuff, some of the stuff you're sharing with us is stuff that you've uncovered. No, there's no question, Dale. It, it's in, true. And the reason why is because Judge Rayleigh Chabot, God love her, you know her extremely well as well. She's an amazing jurist out in uh, Oakland County Circuit Court in Pontiac. And what she has done is a part of my state case. And now I've, I also filed a case in federal court allowed uh, uh, alleging federal issues as well. That's in front of Judge Goldsmith in federal court. But I have this case in, in, in front of Judge Chabot. And Judge Chabot has done what any highly experienced great jurist like, like she is would do. And that is allow me to do what we always do in these cases, Neil, and that is use subpoena power to go get the investigative documents and to see all this stuff and, and then to start to develop our case. And unfortunately, what, what we found out we were facing is we were being blocked by my trial subpoenas, my discovery subpoenas, which are court orders being objected to and blocked by uh, uh, Oxford Community Schools, number one, and number two, Oakland County on behalf of the prosecutor and behalf of the sheriff's office, allegedly. So in a weird way, I'm now fighting all of them together to simply get a police report, Neil. Neil, how many times have you ever not been given a police report when you send someone a subpoena, or in your case, you get discovery from the prosecutor? But I mean, this is routine stuff that I get in every single case, and I've handled other cases with multiple injuries and deaths, and and, and they're all horrible, but no no prosecutor and no or, or no sheriff has ever, and really it wasn't them anyway, I think it's more of the county, but whatever, they didn't try to block me. So here I am every Wednesday, Neil, filing motions to compel, which is just a very rudimentary, low-level thing that we do when the other person or other entity is not giving you documents that you're entitled to. And I'm getting these fighting with, with all of these entities. And remember, I'm representing two folks whose kid died, one another folk, the uh, Gregory's, whose son was in the bathroom while Another young man was uh, another client of ours was being shot and killed execution style. And he runs out. Thank God is, is alive. We have some other folks who are in the school as well. I represent these folks. And after 10 months, Neil, after 10 months, these people don't even know what happened. They haven't seen any videos, not that they want to, but certain parts should have been made available to them. They haven't seen the freaking police report that was done months ago. And so literally I was the only person that had access to this stuff. And I met with my clients and I love them because they are talk about transparent. These people, you know, our community then needs to know this stuff. They need to know what the school knew and didn't do and ignored and so forth. So 
what we've done is exactly what you say. The second I get these documents, my team and I got Jeff Stewart, a great lawyer from my office, Ken Cara, uh, Cassandra, and, and Courtney, and Marlo. And we got a team of people that you can imagine are reviewing this stuff as soon as we get it. And then we uh, actually started some taking some depositions of the teachers and so forth. And round one, where we've taken five or six, and we're going to take more. And when we get that information, Neil, I'm going to share it. It's not been shared at all. And you just compare it with just forget, think of Uvalde, right? Think of that horrible tragedy in Texas. In less than 48 hours, you had the governor, not that I'm a big fan of that guy, but the governor and the chief law enforcement officer of Texas holding live press conferences, showing the video where the cops are all standing around with a finger up their ass, not doing anything, right? Yes. So, and, but that's there. I'm with you, man. I'm going to take there. off my, case, I'm taking off my headphones. 10 months, and... They have nothing. My parents and my families have I, no information other than their kids dead. I, I find that so appalling. I, I just, I can't even believe I, it. You, you stood there in court. And I'm going to play that clip now of you standing in court, telling the judge with, it seemed like the corporation counsel. So the lawyers for the county county. Others, the the on behalf of the school district, I could see right. people in the back of the courtroom who were, right. and you're there standing there. Tell us what you what you said to the judge and how she reacted with your. I said six four. We're gonna show <laughs> that clip. We're gonna show that clip in a second. Six four, standing there, hands on the podium, leaning in. We're gonna play that clip now. That I want you to talk about it. Give me Thank a second you, to play it. All right, we're going to insert that clip there. Thank you. Tell me about that moment in court right there. Well, the clip that you're showing is my rebuttal. So it was my motion. I laid out the facts and so forth, which, of course, Judge Chabot already read and knew. Then let the defense lawyers say whatever they wanted to say. So this is my response to them. And one of the just incredibly insensitive and callous arguments that was being made by the lawyer for Oxford community schools is that, Hey judge. And, and also the County, by the way, actually this, this, this argument was the County. I was wrong. Sorry for, I won't say the name, but sorry for the, the lawyer for uh, Oxford. Cause it wasn't, it was a County. They argued a proportionality, you know, a proportionality, like judge, you have to keep things in proportion here. There's so many papers and so many documents and, and they're, therefore what are the, what's the proportion? What are they measuring against? the loss and the value of my case. So I went unglued as you would imagine I would. It's a like proportionality. I have two dead yeah. kids, another kid who had the gun pointed at him and said, lie down next to him and you're going to die as well. And other kids in the school, I can't think of a larger case that ever existed in my career in 36 years. And as you know, I've handled a few of them, Neil. You have. And so uh, that was my impassioned plea is, do you want to talk proportionality? The proportionality wins, goes my way, not theirs. So she made them produce everything. So I want to transition, if I can, from that case, because we just talked about some of the biggest cases in the country that you've been involved in. And you've been involved in them when... You were uh, certainly with Jeffrey. Yep. You remember um, the Jenny Jones case, baby. I do. You were and there. I, you I, came I, and watched us. I did. And I remember. I've, and I've seen you in action since then. Um, and I've followed your career closely and at times distantly. But I want to talk about the case that you, two of them specifically. Okay. Uh, Patrick Loyola. Oh, man. I want today on behalf of my firm and me to be about the family. And I want to echo what Mr. Crump said and what Reverend Al said. 
Grand Rapids, Michigan, United States. We're so much better than this. Now we have to prove it by transparency, openness, honesty, by the investigation, discipline to this officer, charges criminally, and if necessary, civil action. Thank you. Tell me, uh, if you can, give us a backdrop about that case. That's yeah. a young man who was killed by a Grand Rapids Police Department officer. Officer Schuer, former Officer Schuer, correct. Yes, sir. Um, and you are uh, standing side by side with some of the civil rights titans in the country. Tell us about that. I, and I, I'm, I'm going to hand it over to you and tell us about that case and your involvement and who you've been working with in that case. Thank, thanks, Neil. Uh, Patrick Loyola was uh, a gentleman driving a car in Grand Rapids on off the top of my head, I believe it was April 4 of 2022 here. And uh, the officer was going in the opposite direction. So he then turns around and and follows uh, my client. And ultimately, when he gets he the cop gets out of the car and goes over to the window of my client, he said to my client, your plates don't match the car. Well, all I can tell you is when you're going in an opposite direction into Michigan, our plates are on the back of the car. Unless your eyes work differently in mine and can do circles and turn around and come out the back of your head, you <laughs> don't know about the plate until after he clearly saw two uh, African-American men in a car. And so he was he was probably uh, we're, obviously we're going to work this up and find out more facts, but we're going to we're we're going to strongly believe uh, until otherwise proven that it's a pretextual uh, pretextual stop that he saw a couple of brothers driving, so, so he's going to pull the them pretextual over. stop. Let's just talk about that for a second. Sure, for a reason. So, he saw two black guys, Neil, and you 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 defend folks, and you know I, uh, I know in in, in I our just... country, believe it or not, white people, which drives me freaking crazy, apparently didn't get until George Floyd that profiling has been something that's been going on since you know we've had cars in our country and it's obviously disproportionately against people of color so now that i think that we can finally move past that now that the police agencies are coming forward with their own statistics showing that they need to work on that that's their way of saying yeah it happens so i would like to think that uh, pretty much everybody now can uh, can understand that profiling happens all the time and that's what we think happened here now, in this case, you did some, first of all, you're working side by side, I think, with Ben Crump, who is- Ben Crump is my uh, absolute pleasure, privilege, honor, Neil. Phenomenal lawyer. I obviously saw him on TV. I'd met him a few years ago at a couple of different conferences, and he was very, very kind and said, hey, if we ever have something in Michigan, yeah, maybe we could work together. And you and I both know people say that all the time, and then it never happens, but- Damn, homie, it, it it happened. And he's just been an amazing, he's an amazing person. And to see somebody, you know, we we you and I know a few people that are big time, you know, national type folks as well. And and there are those folks, and then there are just different folks who just have an energy that I I I still say are touched by by God. And believe it or not, that's that's Ben Crump. Say whatever you want, whatever criticism folks may want which I don't hear a whole lot. I hear some, I just, I just completely disregard it because I know the man and the person, just one of the nicest, most benevolent, caring people I've ever met, Neil. And I'm so lucky that he uh, invited me to be on his team. You, you and Ben, and I'm, I'll call him Ben Crump, I'll call him Please. Ben. You and, you and Ben actually went and hired uh, on behalf of the Loyola, is it Loyola? Loyola, yeah, you're right. L-Y-O-Y-A, Loyola. The Loyola family hired Werner Spitz, who and wrote Michael the Bodden, book. Both, by the way. Okay, and Michael Baden, 
right um who wrote each has played a huge role in um the development of the medical legal investigation of death and and um, and I got the new them. book. I hope you got the new book because you know, I, I have the new book. I, I do. <laughs> so uh, tell me, t- I mean, so you guys actually ha- had an uh, had autopsies done. We did. And we had did. reports done and then had a, a, a public announcement about that before right. there was really any information out Correct. there at all from. Correct. T- now, tell me about that deal. and tell me why. I mean, you've got you're just so just so the people. P- let's let's take two baseball two basketball players or okay. two baseball players right in in history right give me two so people can envision what it's like to have, be standing next to ben crump um uh werner spitz and michael Baden. I mean, I mean this is this is the cream of the crop you don't get better uh, dr Baden and dr spitz uh, in my opinion, and again, I know you know both of them are two most uh, utmost forensic pathologists in the world, not just the United States, in the world. If you thought of every major big television movie, uh, criminal and or civil case, Rams, uh, the Ramsey girl, obviously, uh, uh, Michael Jackson, uh, uh, you name it. These guys, uh, uh, Casey Anthony down in Florida, you could come up with case after case and either one, a Dr. Spitz and Michael Baden, Dr. Baden were involved in any of those or probably all of them uh, uh, on some level. So they're just two of the most uh, uh, amazing people and, and, and investigators of cause and manners of death. And the reason we did that, Neil, is because the uh, the the police after the shooting was on, a, I think, a Monday or a Tuesday, they they held their first press conference where they released some but not all of the videos the uh, on on body uh, on body the body cams as well as the uh, on dash cameras and there was a ring uh, video from across the street there was my client had a front seat passenger and the and the dude was uh, uh, videoing as well so they released some but not all of those and they even though of course my client had been dead since monday or tuesday and knew that he had been shot at point blank range in the back of his head execution style since the second it happened because you could see it and the autopsy was done by the kent county uh, medical examiner dr cole k uh, k o h l e who i know you know as well they would not release they would not admit that he was shot and killed from a single gunshot wound from the back of the head by the cop. So, and then I tried to get uh, the. Um, what were they saying report. it was? They were. Or they, they weren't. They wouldn't comment, Neil. They wouldn't freaking comment, right? And and this is what has to stop in our country. We have to stop lying to ourselves and each other about true of uh, true events. It's, you know, he got shot and killed in the back of the head. You know, it's going to come out. Just be honest and truthful and come forward and say it. So then I tried to get the autopsy, Neil, since I don't have a subpoena because there's no case yet. So in other words, it's not a court order. We do a release or an authorization, which you know all about. And I send my nice letter, dear Dr. Cole, I know you did the autopsy, send it to me. And they wouldn't give me the report until after the prosecutor gave them permission to which is complete freaking bullshit. I don't have to wait for a prosecutor to do anything. This is my client who you did an autopsy of. So when, when Ben and I heard about that, I said, you know, come on, Ben, fuck that. Let's go, let's go for it. And we hired Dr. Bodden and Dr. Bodden, as you know, is from New York. Mm-hmm. And then when Dr. Bodden uh, uh, was going to do uh, 
uh, he, he was going to get uh, come and do an independent autopsy. He said, why are you doing this? And get get Werner, who I know even better than Dr. Baden, uh, and get Werner to do it. He's in town, and I don't have to co- I don't have to travel there in the middle of COVID, right? Still on, on the aftermath, mm-hmm. and 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 then he can do it, and I'm going to review his stuff anyway. So it was a perfect. It was a one-two punch. Uh-huh. Get it, fighter? One-two punch, and then and all of a sudden. Uh, we had two of the foremost guys, and so they did it. Came up with uh, the results that they did, and 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 Dr. Spitz is the one that drove over, and did the actual autopsy. We shared the results with Dr. Baden, discussed it with all of them, and then you're right. In order to share the news with people to confirm what apparently the uh, the uh, uh, chief of police of Grand Rapids and the and the entire Grand Rapids community didn't want apparently to be public. Yes, my client was shot and killed in the back of the head by a single gunshot wound. So, and part yes, of what we- you're doing, Ben, in the two cases we just talked about, in my right. view, sir, you're not just putting information out there, but you are correcting what are is a is a are there misimpressions, misinformation, um, information that's put out there or or the absence of information that allows people to form prejudices that if you don't quickly respond to in public, because you're now responding to public entities that aren't giving information over, people form, they form opinions that are very difficult to reshape later on. And so, amen, brother. And I think that's what you're doing. And I think that's one of the reasons why you've you've been so successful Thank you, man. In in doing this, because the entities should be trans, they should be transparent, but they're, they're not public entities, Neil. Right? And when they don't say anything, there's people begin these days. They begin to formulate these opinions that are they're insidious. Well, he must have been doing something wrong. No police officer would ever shoot anybody in the back. Nobody. He must have been drunk. He must have been drunk driving. He must have been resisting. Right. He must have prior history. All this crap. Something. By the way, may and will come out in due time. And by the way, when all that stuff is released, like they do in every police case, right? Uh, 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 Police cases are like no other, right? So whenever it happens, all you hear about for the next two weeks is how bad of a dude or dudette your client was. You hear about every fucking bad thing they ever did. Now, what does that have to do with the cop didn't know any of that shit when they put the gun to the back of their head and blew it off? And the answer is, it's not relevant at all. And I promise you, it ain't coming into evidence <laughs> at the time of trial. Right. So, but they do it in every case. You know that. Neil. I do. It, and it's that's, horrible. And horrible. you're, and I'm telling you that you are, that particularly you are, in my view, you are doing what's appropriate because you are, you're filling the void. Look at, as I, I just literally watched you, um, happened to watch you begin a jury selection in a case. And one of the things that you said to the jury really applies to what you were, we were just talking about, right? You said, and, I, and I'll quote it, you said, look, I, I don't need to start ahead. I just don't want to start behind. 50-yard line, baby. I just right. don't want to start behind. Right. So to my starting behind. And, and part of what you're doing from the front, because these, these entities are not openly disclosing what's happening, right. you're making sure that your clients don't start behind. Right. I'm so, doing my best, right? As you, do. you are. No, you are. You are. Inherent right. biases, prejudices. All exactly. Exist. We and all you're have combating them, those, right? But just doing the best to get at least the the factual information out. And like so on that, last I point, I know what a fighter point, you are. I know what a fighter you are. And I want to transition to because this is gives us a great backdrop. You can okay. see how passionate you are about this stuff and how you approach things. So you actually, as I understand it, tell me about um, Jerry Blassing game. Uh, and tell me about. <laughs> 
Tell me about that case. That's a huge case, a monster Thank verdict. Thank you, man. Um, another civil rights case in which right. you were attempting to 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 right a wrong. Right. Um, and then tell me about. I, I want you to transition and tell me about how you tried that case. Okay. Opening. I want to talk a little bit about cross examination, your approach to it. So let's start with Jerry Blassingame and your your the case that you you tried against the against the city of Atlanta. All right. Well, Jerry Blasingame was a homeless gentleman who was doing the serious crime of allegedly panhandling. Translation, he's one of the guys at the side of the street that we all see probably every every freaking day that says, you know, can I have a buck or what have you. Jerry uh, had the misfortune, though, of, of, of doing it on a an off-ramp for I-75 in downtown Atlanta that is just this cement <laughs> freaking maze. And so there's so many different lanes and of course, the uh, city of Atlanta uh, law department tried to project it like he was doing it in the middle of an expressway. Well, technically it's expressway, but it's a 25 mile an hour ramp, okay, that they tried to mislead the jury with. But anyway, so he was uh, apparently there trying to uh, get some money. And the cop that ultimately got out of the car that day, uh, who, by the way, is uh, an officer that grew up in beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan. And attended Western Michigan University. Interesting. Oh uh, quick <laughs> yeah. Twist, Full circle. Right? Yeah. So in any event, uh, and was a track star in high school. So when this 29-year-old buff, tough uh, cop gets out of the car, starting to run after this 65-year-old uh, brother with a uh, gray and 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 uh, uh, you know gray beard and gray hair, uh, let's just say that the uh, pioneer high school track star probably could have run him down. But we don't do that. We chase him down the uh, shoulder of the highway. Jerry then oh, gets over the guardrail, just like a guardrail that we've all seen. And it was a pathway that went down. It's this little shrub forest area that led to another uh, expressway ramp about 60, 70 feet away. Uh, but uh, this officer, instead of uh, just letting him go, <laughs> right? He What was he doing? The, the officer never saw him kneel. Uh, get a, a dollar, never saw him interfering with traffic, never even saw a sign, never saw him with money. So the officer said, when I got out of the car, I was just going to talk to him. Well, if you were just going to talk to him, then when he ran, why did you run after him? Because mm -hmm. he wasn't guilty of a crime. And of course, he wouldn't give me that. He had probable cause not. So anyway, and it, there's a body cam. I he, saw the body oh, cam. Wait, wait, you mean the one that was supposed to be on that he lied and told everybody that it was off. And then for the first time, even though the passage of four years, uh, some some lawyer from Detroit called Ben Johnson revealed to the jury for the first time, the city of Atlanta found out his camera was on, Neil. It was fucking on. And then what he did after the fact is he turned it off, which erased the two-minute buffering. He erased the entire event. And how did I figure this out? You oh, And that's what I said to the jury. You think that that in Detroit, we just come up with these things on our own. Like I just, I, I, I made up this, this thing and it turned out to be true. No, I read the document that's called a download that city of Atlanta had inside the camera and available to them every freaking day from the day this happened. And this cop wrote in his report and he told internal affairs, he lied, he lied, he lied. And he told him every single time my camera must've been off. I, I, I must've turned it off when I was in the, in the jail earlier that day. And I, and I didn't turn it back on bullshit. Okay, so the set, first set the stage for me in court, whether it was an opening or Wadir or cross set the stage for us. 
and, and paint a picture of how you disclose that to the to the jury. Well, the thing I I, I didn't get to because I got too excited. Sorry. What, no, after, good. After my guy, my guy got over the, the the guardrail. This cop claims that he stayed on the on the roadside of the guardrail. He didn't. He went over it too, and he tased my client Neil in the middle of a back. You're not supposed to tase someone running away from you. You're not supposed to tase somebody on an elevated surface because the incline was about forty to forty five degrees, and you're not supposed to tase elderly people. Now, other than that, he did a fine job. And they came up, of course, with all these excuses as to why it was acceptable that he broke all of those rules. So what I did in my opening statement is I told the jury that this cop has lied to me under oath in deposition. He's lied to the entire Atlanta Police Department, their internal affairs, and anybody and everybody that was dumb enough to listen to him. I didn't quite say that, but close. And that he absolutely destroyed the evidence in this case. And I'm going to prove it to you with the first witness I call. And I called a gentleman that the city of Atlanta produced. He was a trainer in their academy. Did you leave it like that? Did you leave it like that? So that there was a, some, the first witness you called. So basically you're, that's an all in move. Correct. Like you're going all in. Correct. You either got it or you don't with your Correct. first witness. And, and, and here's the kicker. Although the guy that I'm telling you about, the trainer, had been deposed, the lawyer for my office at the time did not go for the meet, as I say to him, so I love him. And I, if he watches this, I'm sure he does. I still love you, baby. But he, <laughs> he kind of played around on the sides a little bit and got close to the right, but you really want to go after him in a deposition and just take it and rip it out of them, right? And, and therefore, you know you have it at trial. But we knew for pretty sure that this guy was going to give it to us because the my, my my the lawyer that did the dep uh, did a nice job. But I had two experts, Neil, two police misconduct experts that both said, Ben, definitively, 100% for sure, this camera download proves this guy deleted this on purpose. So I put on their trainer, the trainer who actually trained the cop that I'm suing and the city. And he got on there and we went through the download and talked about how it proved that the camera was not off at the time. It was in buffering mode. It's a little complicated, but I know you get it. A lot of people mm -hmm. don't. But if the camera is in buffering mode, ladies and gentlemen, in other words, it's not on recording like what Neil and I are doing right now, but it's still on. But what it does is it records everything that happened in the last two minutes. Okay, in, in Atlanta. So even if he didn't turn it on where it's doing a live recording, if something happened and he simply then pushed the button for on, like it not only records right. live what's going on, but it keeps the two minutes before it was turned on. Now, how's right. that for technology? You know all this. But well, and the reason, and the reason they do that is they do that because if a police officer happens to turn on a body cam or they right. happen to turn on, pull a, a weapon, right? that moment may not actually capture and they do it for themselves, really. It's for so that, context, right, Neil? So that's really what it is. Get, yes, so that you can get the 30 seconds, a minute before, Correct. where someone may have swore or thrown something. It's so it's so you're not left with a hockey fight where Correct. you they only can see the second person who retaliated. Correct. They want to be able to have the context so they can see how the fight started. Correct. So, so what we could prove, what my experts absolutely were going to definitively prove is it was on, not off. And so that's what I told the jury. I can prove it was on. 
And I didn't say he intentionally deleted it, but I I told him that's what we think the evidence is going to show. I then put the trainer dude on and this guy, Neil, absolutely buried them. And as you know, it's called a hostile witness rule. He works for the city of Atlanta. That's the entity that I'm suing along with the cop. And therefore I get to cross-examine him. Speaking of the art of cross-examination, the killer cross-examination that you do so well. And I crossed him. He admitted he taught all this stuff to the, the cop that's at the table that you're suing. He knew all this, that this is not he, he'd been using that camera for, at the time of this event for almost a year, every single day. He knew how to sh- turn it on. So there's a toggle switch on and off at the top of the camera. And then once you turn it on, once they turn it on for their shift, it's supposed to stay on 24 hours a day for their entire shift, never turning off at all. Mm. So it either goes, once it's on, it's supposed to stay on and it's in the constant uh, shuttle mode. Or the other one is, then you push this great big center button to make it turn on live. And then you turn it back off, push it three times and it turns it off and goes back to the, uh, the shuttle mode, if you will, but never supposed to turn it off. And you train that guy that, right? Yes, I did. So he knew the difference between on off up here and these other things. Absolutely. It's not very difficult, Mr. Johnson. It's it's uh, and on a different side of the camera. So no question if he's and uh, he under oath, you saw, I showed you the deposition. Yeah, I've seen it. He testified it was off. Yes. That's a lie. Well, I don't know if it's a lie, but it's not true. Well, come on, sir. You think he didn't know it was off? <laughs> right. Yeah, good point. It might be a lie, right? Like one of those type things. And then I said, then so I that's a gotcha him. moment, man. That's like a gotcha moment. And the only thing he didn't give me, Neil, to this guy's credit, he was any and he played it straight, Neil. And it, it's the freaking truth, right? So I would hope he would, but you and I both have seen where they try to cover mm-hmm. up for each other. And he did not, to his credit. The only thing he wouldn't give me is that where I said he intentionally deleted it by turning it off. What he said was, I can't, I can't read his mind, but I agree with you that he knew the difference between touching the button here and the toggle switch off up here, because I told him and taught them that if you turn it off up here, you've now erased that two minutes of buffering. So you told him that, yes, he still did it, yes, so you'll acknowledge, although you can't read his mind, that it's certainly a possibility that he did it on purpose. Yes, that is a crime. Yes, for which he could be prosecuted. Yes. And mm. all we know is no one is not only fucking not prosecuted him, no one's even disciplined him. No one's even disciplined him for this. And how can you explain that to me? And he goes, I can't. How do you explain? How do you think? So didn't you just want to, didn't you, at that moment, Ven, are you someone that when you're cross-examining, a witness like that, do you, are you looking at the jury? Are you engaging them or are you looking at the witness? Can you feel that moment right there that everybody's looking and they're like, can we just clear this trial over right now? Do we have to sit through the rest <laughs> of it? I mean, can you, cause that's a climax moment. There's, there's no question, bro. It was a big deal. I played, I, I played it a little, uh, you know, th- that was a calculated decision. Uh, Steve Nath, that you know very well, my uh, yep. incredible jury consultant was like, are you sure you want to do this? I was like, oh yeah, I want to do this. 
And so it worked out well, but this is the interesting part. The, the jurors, we only had eight jurors that, which is similar to what we do in Michigan. We only needed six, had two alternates who we allowed to sit and they deliberated too, but they all wore masks, Neil. So I'm only seeing from this up, but their eyes were like this, bro. So I knew, I knew that, that it, how can you not be interested in that? And of course, I just told him about this in my opening statement, not even an hour before. So it was pretty compelling stuff. It. it was a Let me great tell you what, start. One of the reasons why I love it is because you, one, you told the jury what you were going to do. You then did it. Right. And, and you did it early enough when their attention is still, is still before Primacy. all the, well, let's watch a video and let's get to the recency, baby. You know, you, you got them right off the bat. So now they're just like, and, and I don't care. I, I know jurors are supposed to, they're, they're supposed to wait to decide the case until they get the final instructions, but they're, but th th this is a human drama that's playing right. out, right? They're going to be pulled one way or the other as the right. case goes on. And we proved Neil through that guy and, and many others uh, just lie after lie of this cop, right? So now they knew on, on witness one that he lied about having his camera on. And now, and I, and I said to him, I told you, I cross-examined you in your depth. And I told you that if it was really on and, and, and you said it was off, that that would be a lie. And you, right. You, so you knew there was a possibility. We talked about the possibility. How, when did you review this download? Last, last night. What do you mean last night? This, this was four years ago. I took your deposition a year and a half ago. They never showed it to you. No. Like where's the city of Atlanta and their investigation? Where the fuck wouldn't they come up and, and, and ask this guy like, dude, you lied to us. He should have been fired. Nothing, nothing, Neil. Wow. So we, we just played on that. We played, we, we, we proved that he was a liar, that he, he was not on the roadside of the guardrail when he tased my client, that he was already down the hill. He testified. He didn't know that it was really that big of a hill. We proved that he lied about that too, because he's on the hill. So he had to know it was down there. I mean, literally like just one thing after another, by the way, when he got out of the car, he didn't turn on his camera like he's supposed to have. And he didn't radio in and say, Hey, dispatch, I'm on foot. I'm going to write all the things that we both know because of what you do as well, that they have to do. And the reason why, bro, he was going rogue. He was just dealing with another panhandler. What the fuck did he care? And that's exactly what I told him in my closing, by the way, this was and, off and the books. Your argument this was off the books. Tell the me, second that they pulled up. Now I, we can all tell that your argument made sense and that it resonated. Right. But I, but but in your but in your in your field in your right. arena, personal injuries, civil rights litigation, um, you don't get to actually tase and injure the the police officer. You can't go back in time. Right. So you get to ask for your for money. Right. So tell me how, how the jury how the jury react in 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 your case. Well, again, when you do what I do and and you learn because asking people for money, I will tell you is is what I believe to be the one of the most difficult things that anybody can do uh, in in my world. Uh, it is no question. It's something you have to do many times. You have to practice it. You have to do it, but most importantly, you have to believe it. And so uh, I felt so strongly about this case, as you can tell, and we had the evidence, Neil. I had two police misconduct experts who absolutely came in and said, yes, this guy erased it intentionally. Yes, he knew he was lying at the time of the deposition. He clearly knew it was in buffering mode because that's the only reason you would turn it off after the fact is to get rid of it. So I, I had that. And so, dude, I went for it. And my client was a quadrupedic 
that's a little bit different than quadriplegic. In other words, he could move his arms almost like this. Can't care for himself, can't itch his face, can't do anything with it. But since he can, he's called a quadriplegic instead of a quadriplegic. I learned that in this trial, by the way. I didn't know that before. So my guys needed 24-hour-a-day care, Neil, because when he landed, and this was, again, revealed in front of the jury, when, when they tase you, we all know that your muscles basically lock up. It's like a Charlie horse. But most people think it's just your legs. No, y'all, it's all your muscles. So think of my guy now, Neil, running down a 40 to 45 degree decline, right? And then when he gets tased, not only does his legs lock up, but so does his arms. So he face planted going downhill. So when he face planted and hit the hard ground, he ultimately slid and completely bashed the side of his face, breaking almost every bone in his upper face on the cement pad on top of which is one of those uh, steel electrical boxes that we see next to highways and expressways and so forth. So he, and that, that shoved his head back that in essence damaged his spinal cord and although they did a surgery on his back, his spinal cord was so badly injured, it rendered him a quadra, at the time, pelagic, but now they call it quadriparetic. Uh, uh, so he is needed, Neil, from the day and second that this happened, 24-hour-a-day care, 365. And this happened back in 2018, four years and ben, two how months. much was he panhandling for? How much was he asking for well, when he was on the side of the road? It's interesting. First of all, how would I know? Because they didn't collect any evidence. So there was a dollar bill that was next to his body in some of the photos, not collected. There was a, a piece of cardboard that you, it was kind of folded up and it looked like there might be writing on it, not collected. How The wires that come out of the uh, taser, Neil, not collected. So come on, Neil, right? So you they completely whitewashed this investigation. There was no fucking investigation whatsoever. And they did it on purpose because they're covering up for their boy. Here's right? a guy asking for... A pennies dollar. or a dollar on the side Whatever of the road, it is, right? And he's and he and he's now left. Uh, to, to his lawyer has to ask for four point two million dollars of past medical bills already, right? And and projection into the future through his uh, normal life expectancy, another seventeen million. So yeah, I asked Neil for a lot of a lot of money. I asked for over two hundred million bucks, and the jury basically gave me half. They gave me one hundred million, sixty million against the city. Uh, 40 million against the cop, 20 million for compensatory. That's the, the damages. And then 20 million for, uh, for even ask, then, are, are the police officers involved? Are they still on the force in Atlanta? Are they officers? absolutely, absolutely. In fact, what we found out at trial, Neil was in the middle of trial, even though this guy testified a year and a half before, uh, his, the trial that he'd never been disciplined after I took his deposition, they did a sham investigation never revealed it to us, never told us about it, never picked up a phone, never wrote us a letter. And then at the time of trial, when they hand us a, a stack of exhibits, Neil, that was this big in a folder, this was number 59 out of 60 or something mm. like that. They buried mm -hmm. it. Buried it. And so I'm in trial saying you were never, yeah, they never, uh, uh, they never uh, disciplined, never disciplined. And everyone was like, yeah, I know. I, I can't believe they didn't, but this is right in front of the jury. And the defense lawyer just sat there knowing full well that he had been. So when I had that guy in the witness stand, he tells me, yeah, I, I was disciplined. What are you talking about? So they did that on purpose. The judge absolutely sanctioned the lawyers from Atlanta for, for how we call it? Uh, well, you know what they call it, sandbagging. Mm -hmm. And Hide the ball struck mm -hmm. the documents, would not allow the city of Atlanta to even use them. 
because of that lie. So the jury was pissed and the jury clearly knew that they were uh, uh, obviously rendering full full judgment, if you will, in favor of this poor man. And and they did it. They, they gave it to him good. And, you know, I, I'm proud, Neil, to say, you know, money, a lot of people great, feel a lot a, of things about money and so forth. But uh, when when this is the largest uh, excessive force jury verdict that we can find ever. And obviously, there's a lot of great lawyers out there, Jeffrey Feiger being one of them, uh, Ben Crump being yet another of them, and Tony Romanucci from Chicago doing it all over the country. He was in George Floyd, Tony was along with Ben, uh, and so forth, doing great work, getting some huge verdicts. But so far, based on our research, it's the the biggest one ever. And, and you know, getting a verdict and then get uh, and getting paid is a whole different thing for my client. Obviously it's going to be a long appellate road and so forth. And folks don't know this, but my client doesn't get a dime until all that shit's done. So it's going to be years, but uh, it, it's still, you know, I have to admit it, it brings me a lot of pride. You know, Ayana Hatchett, great lawyer who was trying it with me. Darren Tobin is a great lawyer from Atlanta was our local counsel. He was down there. Steve Natter, jury consultant that, you know, was down mm -hmm. there with me every day. Anthony Cairo, who, you know, does our uh, IT, our computer stuff and does exhibits and so forth. He was down there with us. So, man, we were down there, you know, two straight weeks living out of a hotel, living out of a bag. And, uh, and, and, and we were very, very fortunate that that, that jury found uh, in our favor, in favor of Jerry and Jerry deserves every, every dime of all of it. Uh, it's a great story. It's a sad story. I should say all of our stories are sort of on the back. When I say great story, they're all on the back of a pretty human drama and human tragedy. So um, you never want a good but, case, Neil, is what I no. tell my clients, right? You never <laughs> want to be right. one of my best cases ever. That's right. Something That's really right. bad happened to somebody that you either let you me, or someone you love. Let me ask you this, Ben. How would you characterize um, your your style, your cross-examination, your lawyering style in court? You had to pick a couple of words to describe it. Um, I, I would call it no frills. I, I don't do anything fancy. I violate the Irving Younger rule every case because I always ask questions on cross. I don't know the answer to, but I don't care because I'm willing to, I call it go down the rabbit hole and someone's going to make stuff up or say something really dumb. I'm going to follow them right down the, the hole and show the jury how, uh, you know, how, how much bullshit that is. Like the cop who said he didn't do it on purpose. Don't tell me, do you know the difference between an on-off switch up here and the one down there? You're going to tell the jury you don't? you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, but it's, it's, so it's, I don't do anything fancy. I don't try to trick anybody, but I, I think what I do a decent job of is I give people enough rope that if they're going to make shit up and lie, that I let them hang themselves. And then I, once I got uh, enough rope to it, then I make it tight, right? I, I let them feel it. <laughs> and so I, I, I do that. And, but I think um, uh, another thing that folks are not used to with me is I go from being quite conversational. And as you know, you don't, you, you, no witness up there. Do you want to be yelling at the whole time? You want to get them to up there talking and, and giving their, their, their bullshit story or giving the truth or whatever they're going to do. Right. So I, I think I, I mix it up a little bit so they don't know exactly where I'm going. And then they give it, they, they sneeze and I'll say, bless you, sir. You good. You need a minute. You good. Okay. All right. Now let's talk about the lie you were just talking about. Right. So I don't, I, I try not to necessarily let them know exactly where I'm going. Cause I think that's when people are, are the most honest. Uh, when, when, that's why when folks talk about, uh, you know, the podcast or getting an interview, don't send me questions. Don't, don't, you know, I don't give a shit what you ask me, ask me anything you want. You're going to get an honest answer. And I think that most people, but I know jurors, that's what they want to hear, Neil. 
right? When you're up there and you're on somebody's ass, a cop or whoever, and you're cross-examining, they want to see that you're doing it professionally, externally, go ahead, but have the fucking goods, man. Don't, don't be making a big deal out of bullshit stuff. Go for the meat and go show me something real. Do you, I've seen you do, do that. You, you go right. Do you get into it with them like this? Will you, do you get into them with, I mean, I can tell, I mean, we don't have a script. Just right. so you know, we have no, we have no script. I mean, there's no script Zero. here between you and I. No. Um, I wouldn't so, be able to read it anyway. No. And I, and I wouldn't be able to follow <laughs> it. <laughs> no, do you, I, I do, do it all do, the time. Yeah. If, if they're, if, if it's merited, right. So for this cop uh, on the stand, I talked about, you know, when I was talking about pioneer high school, I go, I, I, I know you're, you were a track star. Yeah, Mr. Johnson, I was. And apparently you did really well in, in, in regionals and stuff. You were one of the best in the state, right? Class A back then, I'm dating myself because now it's division one, right? But, but come on, Officer Grubbs, right? You were at one of the biggest high schools in the state of Michigan. You were one of the best track stars. And you can't outrun a 65-year-old man on the side of a road? You know? Yeah. So I got into it, right? You say right. you were here. The so you're, and one of the things that you're doing so well right there is... You're first of all, he's going to agree with you on all the points that things that naturally default to his own, like his his Make him look his good. glory days, right? Yes, like, sir. Like, and then you're like, come on, man, you know you cannot run come that on. guy. Because because what's he going to say? No, I can't. Because they're going to look about, and say it's it, it's. How about this you, one? You've created a logical contradiction. Either he accepts your premise, or he's going to have to disagree with it, which is. Which is a, even though you don't have him actually like on the on the track running, right? The jurors know absolutely. He knows he's a buff dude, man. He's he's a weightlifter. Yeah, I mean, he's he like knows. five foot seven. I go, how tall are you? Five foot seven. He goes, only five foot seven, like that. Don't waste any. Yeah, but you can run fast. Yeah, I can run fast. <laughs> so, yeah, he's, he's, how about you think you can outrun most sixty five year old men? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I think I could. I I. I if you had one person to cross-examine oh, any any time in history, who would it be? Oh, well, again, cross-examination, right? Doesn't have to be adversarial. Correct, it doesn't. But I, I would love to, you know, like think of just some of the best speakers of all time. Can you imagine, like, cross-examining Oprah? <laughs> cross-examining like <laughs> president obama or martin luther king right or or jfk i mean just, just to see how smooth they would be and so forth oh yeah but, uh yeah i i don't you know i don't know i, I i'm uh i don't really it's not like i want to cross people but right it, it's certainly fun you know that but i have to I admit you know i think uh one of the things that i do differently than a lot of folks i think uh direct i think i win more my cases in my case in chief because unlike you i go first in in my stuff and so my, my direct exams uh, are, are really a, a lot of the deal breakers. And, and where I think, because again, we open strong, right? You know, voir dire for allowed, which isn't all the time now. Uh, I'm going to get into certain issues, good and bad for my case. And then I follow that up an opening, opening statement. And I talk about, you know, the good. And then I, and I talk about the bad stuff because I don't want them to hear from the other guy for the first time or other gal. So, but then, then I, when I, when I put my first two or three witnesses on, I want it strong, right? And I want it to be consistent with everything I just told them about. So a lot of times I'll start with an expert who I know knows more about all this stuff than anybody. And obviously if they're an expert, I've hired them, which of course is revealed to the jury. I tell them that, but everything that I just told the jury about Neil in my opening statement about what happened here in the first day or two is completely proved, proven. 
And so I think, and you picked up on that earlier, I think that is a, a methodology that's worked very well for me. And again, like in Atlanta case, I didn't start with my expert. I started with the guy that worked for them. But I, I, I start with people that I know are going to be very strong on, on that my client did nothing wrong and the other side did. And, and I think that, again, if I, if I lay that out in my opening statement that this is what happened and then I prove it in my first witness or two, uh, obviously there, I hope, is going to be some pretty good, strong credibility issue uh, uh, that I've gained, right? Credibility with the jury. Mm -hmm. uh, so they can see that I'm not bullshitting them. I, I told you I'm going to prove this and I did it right away. Listen, you, that that's the, that's the key, right? You, right. The, I, I believe once the, th there's a tug of war going on and you have to, you can't just wait. You can't leave that, the, the, the flag, the, the, in the middle of that rope, you can't leave that there for very long. Right. Cause no, you got it. You got to, you, you got to pull baby. You right, got to come right. strong. And again, primacy recency, right? So start and strong. Big. Doesn't mean, as you just said, doesn't necessarily mean hard. No, doesn't no. mean it doesn't mean mean or, Agreed. or snarling teeth. It just means, Hey, I'm going to, I'm not dancing around here. I'm going right. to start, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to call it real. Right. Right. I and that. I think a lot of time, Neil, that there are, there's a lot of lawyers on in both what you do and what I do that are out there that are spending too much time on their feet talking when they should be asking one or two questions and sit the fuck down. Just sit down, make your point and be done and then let it let it materialize. Sometimes right? the best question is is the one you 100. don't ask. Right. <laughs> <laughs> See, Irving Younger, proven right yeah. again. <laughs> All right. Uh, let me. So then, this has been an incredible conversation. You, I know Appreciate you. All your time. And I know you have so many other cases that we could talk about. You've been involved in the the Midland uh, flood case. Flood case. Right. Uh, you've been involved in the Flint water case, and have one of the, the coolest side. commercials I've seen out there. With uh, I don't even know her name, but where you're a cartoon character, and she's a <laughs> an animation. Miss I Flint. love. Little What's Miss that? Flint, uh, Little Miss Flint. Yeah, she's she's amazing. She's like fourteen, right? She's uh, I think she's eighth grade or she's ninth grade this year. And talk about a rock star. She got gained more social media attention on the Flint water crisis than everybody else combined. And like literally invited to the White House, met President Obama, Oprah, you name you name it, anybody. And 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 that's what she did. She's amazing. And, you know, we partnered up for a few things. And now, uh, you know, she does all sorts of incredible charity stuff up in Flint, which is, of course, where we have uh, Tommy Wan in our office up there in mid-Michigan, near my hometown of Saginaw. So uh, we've, we've still assist and, and sponsor and, and donate. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been, a, it's been quite a ride, Neil, for 11 and a half I, years. I, I, I know that. And your passion is so apparent. Thank you, um, if if people wanted to learn, let's just give them the social media context for you. Where can they find you? What can if they want to learn more about you? If they want to watch your commercials or your video, or they want to reach That's out to you on social media, uh, how would they do that? www.venjohnsonlaw.com or venfights.com, and uh, and obviously we have the firm website and uh, my my we got near perfect media and seeds doing all sorts of great stuff with both of those things. So it, it'll get you to YouTube. God forbid, if you're really bored and want to see that, and I would hope not, but you know, uh, seriously, but there's uh, they've done a great job with that. We talk, uh, obviously I've shared uh, on the website with 
uh, I, as you, I hope pick up and most folks pick up, you will rarely see anything about money in my, in my, uh, uh, commercials. I, I don't, I try to talk about justice. I try to talk about helping people and that type of thing. I'm not, I'm not one of these guys that, that does a lot of flash and the numbers, but there's the most recent commercial. We put it up there, but I didn't talk about it, but it's definitely up there, but it's uh, all that stuff is on the website. If people want to see the verdicts and the numbers and all that crap, but, uh, for, for us and, and for me, it's it's about helping people. And and what's great about what we do, Neil, and the same thing of what you do, right? Every every case really is it's about justice and and you achieving justice for someone, uh, which can be different looking each case in a different way. Uh, and so doing that and helping people through what is clearly one of the worst things that could ever happen to them, just like you do. Uh, it, it, it's a pleasure and an honor. It's a privilege. And, and I, I look at that and I thank God for that every single day. And uh, it, it means the world to me. But if that's where folks, uh, that's where we put all that other crap. Ven Fights on Instagram. There you go. At Ven Fights on Instagram. Thank you very Love much. Morgan. At Ven Fights. That's your Instagram handle. Right. I see you got an awesome media room. Um, <laughs> it, and it uh, looks like you've got um, just... Look, Ven, I've known you for a long time, um, but it, it looks like this is, if one had thought that you were, you know, winding it up uh, a couple of years ago, they were wrong. I can't afford the pay cut, bro. <laughs> yeah, they were wrong. They were wrong. And no, I, no, know, there ain't no. God they're going to follow. Right? We don't know about health and all that stuff, but uh, we're going to follow me, like, the Oxford case. Years? We're going to follow the. I'm doing this. What else could I do? What else would I want? Well, you're do? good I'm at so it, and blessed. you enjoy it. I love and I can, it, and you you're good at it, and you enjoy Thank it, you. and you represent your clients at, zealously, and it's obvious, and it shows. I mean, who doesn't want a lawyer that's going to be in court passionately, gripping the side of the podium, leaning into the courtroom, saying, "Look, this is my space," yep. and that's that, that's what you do, man. Thank you. Buddy. So that, that's Ven Johnson, um, I, a superstar guest on the Killer Cross-Examination podcast. I'm Neil Rockine. You can find us on all social media channels. Um, like, subscribe, follow. We're everywhere. Everywhere you can find podcasts. Killer Cross-Examination, KillerCrossExamination.com. And again, I'm so glad that my good friend Ven Johnson was able to join me on this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Neil.